1: and on Instagram and Twitter at BurnedByBooks. Let's start the show. Vanessa A. B.'s debut memoir, Homebound, an uprooted daughter's reflections on belonging, tells a globetrotting story of Vanessa's birth in Cameroon, adoption by her aunt and her aunt's white husband, childhood in France and London, and immigration with her mother to the United States. It is a story of enormous bravery and transformation of Vanessa seeking and finding a way to belong, no matter the place or the circumstances. Each chapter introduces us to a new definition of the word home, a domicile, a father, a collection of proper names, a community, and many, many others that may or may not ground Vanessa and give her life and identity, a place and space of refuge. Vanessa's is a fundamentally a struggle to define home in terms that accurately describe the ways in which she lives and loves. And when one definition fails to be truthful to her experiences, she looks to others and grafts something new from the inadequate parts. Along the way, we learn about Vanessa's internal strife with her, at times, deeply held religious beliefs. That struggle is heightened in the years in which Vanessa gains admission to Harvard Law School, where she feels alternately welcomed and excluded. She divorces the husband that came with her to Cambridge, and Harvard is not what it promised. That experience leads her to an unexpected job at the Federal Agency of Housing and Urban Development where she discovers that the parameters of what can be a home for specifically a black family in the United States are often determined by racist underpinnings of the law and behaviors by real estate agents and politicians. Her quest for a home becomes a zeal to find fair housing for others less privileged, more excluded, and often forgotten. Written with warmth, wit, and intellectual honesty, Homebound brings us an original voice and an extraordinary story of a fearless quest for belonging and a home. Vanessa A.B. is a consumer protection lawyer with what she calls a freelancing habit. Welcome to the show, Vanessa.
0: Thank you for having me, Chris.
1: Thank you for being here. Yours is an extraordinary story, but the telling of that story requires tremendous vulnerability on your part. How did you decide you wanted to tell the story of your family, your transformation, and your quest for a home in every sense of that word?
0: I started from a place of curiosity. I genuinely had an interest in making sense of my relationship to that term, to the concept of home. And I felt emotionally like I was in a place to look back and reflect because I was finally Firmly into adulthood, I had found a physical home that felt a lot like a lot like mine. I had found a community that I was rooted in, and um, I was in a stable relationship, thinking of starting a family of my own. And so I felt I had enough distance from even the sort of larger questions of, you know, finding home in my family in the identity of my parents um, so that's sort of where I started and and I I kind of felt finally comfortable enough to explore these questions and then once I got into the work, you know it was sort of chapter by chapter having to make decisions about you know not just being vulnerable about myself but what about my family, I was willing to reveal and, and Hmm. I, which I think are questions that a lot of um, people who write memoir have to wrestle with. It's one thing to write about yourself, but then are you willing to share sort of, you know, more complicated stories about people you love or people you've met people you might run into again. Um, and, and that was really a sort of chapter-by-chapter chapter determination. Mm-hmm.
1: I, I like very much how you begin each chapter with a new dictionary definition of home. You highlight its varied and variable meanings from community to physical housing to safe space to a homeland. What was appealing about this device as a structuring element for your story?
0: Um, so the decision to start the chapters with definitions actually came in pretty late in the process. I had already written the book. And um, I thought it might be, you know, it made sense to me that instead of using a poetry quote or something from a novel um, to open the book, to actually use, you know, the Merriam-Webster dictionary definition of home. And so I thought, okay, I'll put that at the beginning of the book just to sort of show the reader how expansive the definition of home is in the dictionary. Mm -hmm. And then I thought, well, because it is so complex and this book goes in a lot of places, wouldn't it be helpful to the reader as a goalpost if I gave them a sense of where each chapter is going and how I'm thinking about home in this particular chapter and period of my life that I'm, that each chapter is is focused on, you know, with the disclosure here that the chapters are chronological, but mostly centered around themes or sub themes, I should say. And and so I thought, well, I can, uh, what I'll do is I'll expand the definitions with my own understanding of it. And at the same time, provide some guidance on where we're going next.
1: Mm -hmm i'd like to talk for a minute about your name throughout your memoir the question of your name and how you inherited it is fundamental to your understanding of what home means your name as printed on the book is not your birth name it's a shortening of a name that connected you to a deep lineage and history of a people in cameroon you call it an oral history of a place could you take us through the story of your name and describe the importance of your journey to understand what that name says about you and your family?
0: Sure. Um, so my real last name is S.I. Billy, and I inherited that last name from my biological father, who is someone that my biological mother very much loved. Um but also had a complicated relationship with. This is someone who was married to someone else while he was dating my mom and who made a conscious decision when I was a baby and still um, in the custody of my biological mom to not be involved in my life. Later, he, I think, changed his mind, but still our relationship was never really... um, developed. But I, I carried peaceful last name my entire life. And for a long time, I didn't actually know what it meant. I thought my last name didn't have a translation because it's it's an African last name. And so you couldn't really find, um, you know, a Greek or Latin or kind of Western foundation for the, the root of the words. And it was a different last name from um, the last name of the two adults who eventually, my aunt and uncle, who eventually formally adopted me. So I always felt very self-conscious about having this last name that I felt sort of created a barrier between me and my parents, Hmm. my adoptive parents.
1: Yeah, you said at one point you you felt like a stranger to your name.
0: Yeah, it was, and I think adding to that is that my first name is not Vanessa. Vanessa is my middle name. Um, Elizabeth is my first name. So my full formal name, you know, was a first name that most people didn't use other than, you know, say my pediatrician. And my last name was was the last name of a person who I think had, you know, very little interest in me and someone I didn't know and didn't love. And so I just felt very conflicted about it. At the same time, my adoptive parents never bothered changing my last name. So I went to school, I obtained my degrees. I purchased an apartment with that last name on, you know, basically each of my, each and every of my accomplishments. And as an adult, I decided to start writing under a pen name in part because, you know, I was a lawyer and um, I didn't want (laughs) opposing counsel to be able to quickly Google me and somehow, I don't know, use my writing against me, although that hasn't really happened. But also a huge part of using a pen name was wanting to, you know, was making a conscious decision to disassociate myself a little from my biological father and not mm-hmm. be it for everything. And part of the book is, you know, unpacking that and deciding what to do with that last name, whether to keep it or, or not, you know?
1: Mm-hmm. Your story is one of incredible global range. Cameroon, France, the UK, and within the US, west and east coasts. You call it your uprooted life. Feeling at home as a global wanderer must have been incredibly taxing. Wherever, whenever you moved and settled, did it feel like home was inevitably elsewhere?
0: It, it did, and it didn't in a way I was fortunate enough that I did the most of my moving as a child, you know, moved to France under the age of one from Cameroon, moved to England at 10 and a half, moved to Reno, Nevada at 13 and a half. Inevitably, other than France, where I don't actually have memories of what it felt like to be uprooted from Cameroon, but moving to England, yes, immediately I very much felt you know, like a fish out of water. I didn't speak English. The culture was very different than French culture. I didn't understand <laughs>
1: Notably. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I didn't understand yeah. the slang. And, you know, sort of went through that again, moving to the United States in ninth grade, where that's also just generally a tough time to move as a kid, right? Mm-hmm. Um and then, you know, you'd be surprised. Kids are so adaptable. And so I think being 10 and a half and being 30 gave me, you know, you sort of come baked in with these, with, with the ability to pick up language quickly and figure out how other kids behave. And so in some ways, by the time I left England, I felt pretty, I still felt French, but also a bit British. Mm. And, and, you know, and when I moved to the United States, I lost my accent really quickly. And I would say that I feel also pretty Americanized now as an adult. Um, so there was always an adjustment period, but eventually these places came to feel like home hmm.
1: that's that's so beautifully described. Your experiences in each of those places also was an illumination of the forms of discrimination, but uh, that come to a person with black skin, but also a revelation about what your roots mean to you in opposition to what your skin color means to others. What were some of the lessons that these places that you lived offered you about what blackness meant in their cultures?
0: Oh, my goodness. So think that so while I lived in France, in both Western France, which is you know, i would, I think I was my hometown of Chaellera and in Lyon. I, you know, I knew I was in these really white spaces. I was conscious of being conscious and self-conscious about being a black, a black kid in, in those spaces. Um, but I wasn't, I hadn't experienced an alternative. And so it was very much my normal. And moving to England, I ended up moving with my mom to Northwest London to these incredibly diverse and culturally rich neighborhoods. I
1: immediately think of Zadie Smith's writing about that that area and, and how much she just l- loves the, the diversity of Northwest London.
0: Yes, uh, right. And um, it really h- developed in me a sense of pride in not mm-hmm. just my Blackness, but my Africanness. You know, I write a bit in the book about, just in passing about being little in france and my mom speaking iwondo in public places and and it makes you want to die right you're like oh my gosh no (laughs) like everyone will know that we're not from here and in england there was just so much pride among the black kids the caribbean kids the kids whose parents from were from ghana and nigeria um that i really soaked that up so that was a really That was really illuminating moving to the united states and being a bit older i think i america just has this really unique conception of race so on the one hand i was somewhat privileged compared to other black people because i had this accent and i was an exotic black person i wasn't a regular black person which is very Mm -hmm. silly but that i think that had some social benefits Um, Mm -hmm. And then just growing up, learning how discrimination has worked in America, how it has, you know, in the world that I work in, how it has impacted people in the finance world, people, you know, purchasing financial products and just being targeted and discriminated against. That was just really shocking, but also just a really helpful thing to understand, you know, not just because I'm passionate about that kind of work now, but also as a, mm-hmm. also a consumer, right? So I write about <laughs> buying a home and understanding like my position is not the same as that of my white husband when he enters a transaction. It's just really good knowledge to have. So.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, one One of your biggest moves is when you're admitted to Harvard Law School and you decide on your mother's urging to relocate with a new husband to Cambridge, Massachusetts, you didn't really believe at first that Harvard was a door that could be opened for you. And you arrived there, a practicing evangelical Christian, with with at least conservative leanings. Harvard has a reputation for being alienating in general, but what was your experience like there?
0: It was actually quite freeing, and I'm guessing I had maybe an atypical experience. But it's my experience, I think, is tainted by how sheltered I was prior to moving to Massachusetts, right? I was in this really conservative household, member of a very conservative church. So in college, I would not say that I was living it up. And in fact, (laughs) college was a very alienating and lonely experience for me. So I moved to Harvard, which, you know, Harvard Law had... All these student groups and opportunities to be social, and all my classmates were so smart and interesting. And I, I lucked out in that they were very like patient and welcoming towards me. So I sort of went in with an attitude of wanting to make up for lost time, and I would say that socially I had a fairly good time. That said, the transition wasn't without hiccups. You know, it was one of my first. I think I understood before Harvard Law that there were that, like, I certainly knew that we weren't rich. And in fact, I had experienced poverty and homelessness as a kid. But I I didn't think of myself as poor. And I certainly hadn't been near extreme wealth. And all of a sudden, I'm around people who have trust funds, you know, and just Mm -hmm. the world so differently than me. Um, So that was a bit harrowing. And then it was so academically rigorous, and I really struggled in the beginning to think the way I can't even say think like a lawyer because I don't think law school actually really prepares you to think like a lawyer. But just hmm. think in this very particular, strange way. It, it, it was shocking. And for the first time, I kind of struggled academically. And, and I would say, you know, that was just a really difficult. Um, experience on top of kind of coming to grips with maybe not wanting to be a conservative christian anymore and maybe not wanting to be married anymore.
1: Mhm. One of the one of the groups that's quite welcoming to you on your arrival is the Federalist Society, which I'll I'll say from my own limited perspective sort of Exists kind of like the Joker in a uh, in in a horror movie, off you know in the shadows, planning planning devious things. Which I will completely cop to being a, a rather limited vision of them. Um, but I'm interested in hearing a little bit about you know what that experience was like of kind of being welcomed in by a you know a fairly notorious uh, group of of law students. I'll,
0: uh, to your point, I will say that back in you know 2009 when I was at HLS, I think there had been much less reporting on mm. the power of the Federalist Society. So I think it's very possible that very sophisticated people kind of already knew what it was doing behind the scenes for the conservative movement. But I will say that at the time, it just seemed to me like a big student group that was welcoming to... Um, conservative and conservative-ish students. Um, And, yeah, I mean, at law school, they were known for having great outlines and pretty good, like, lunches with speakers. (laughs) And they brought some controversial speakers on, like, I'll say that, but but they weren't the, like, specter that they are now. Um, Mm -hmm. Because I was socially conservative, I did... I felt less, um, I don't want to say less judged because the liberal friends I made were in law school were actually not really judgmental people at all towards me. But, you know, there's what people actually do and then what you actually feel and feel self-conscious about, right? So. Among conservatives, I just felt like no one was going to look at me strangely for being married at 20 years old Mm -hmm. or for being a fairly devout Christian. So, you know, I kind of found a home there, at at least for the first two years of law school. And then slowly, as I had my awakening, political awakening, or at least started trying to figure out what I actually believed, you know, without you know, if I didn't want to be a Christian, then what were my actual political beliefs and spiritual beliefs? Once I sort of, sort of started that journey, I think I felt um, a little less attracted to the Federalist Society and slowly um, sort of drifted. But yeah, initially they were just really nice. It's hard to like, it's hard to believe now. And I'm I was a bit embarrassed to admit it in the book, but I thought that I should be open about it in part because, you know, I wanted to show that people's politics can change and maybe should change. And I wanted mm, to mm-hmm. open about the fact that I didn't come out of the womb having the beliefs that I had and uh, that there's a lot of value in being nice to people. One of the reasons why I was so comfortable with the Federalist Society is because the people there were nice. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. <laughs> I think there are lessons in that too, you know, uh, in that welcoming people to the side of political of your political beliefs, I think takes, it's more than just like the beliefs themselves. There's also a way in which you treat people that matters and that will attract people and that will keep people around.
1: Well, and I mean, you're, you're explaining very well why they have, have been successful by being open Mm -hmm. and by being welcoming to, to groups of people who might feel otherwise alienated by, by Harvard and its, and its traditions. Um, you know one of the ways that that political transformation happens for you in homebound is through this idea of home ownership and what it means to to black families to poor families and during your time working at at uh, housing and urban development or hud you begin to dig in into the parallel history of black home ownership and the ways in which the Great Recession of 2009 and a whole host of other structures of inequality have kept Black Americans from ever achieving the dream of property ownership, and even in the cases when they do, making sure that they bear the heaviest debt for that privilege. How did your experience at HUD transform your thinking about the law and about home?
0: Oh, goodness. Well, I'll start with my thinking about the law. I think that my work at HUD really highlighted for me the limitations of the law. I'll say that what I'm about to say isn't really in the book um, as much, but you know, there are all these policies that can encourage people, that it can en- help undo discrimination and, and encourage homeownership and, and make sure that people have good, affordable... Uh, comfortable uh, habitations. Um, But a lot of that work, I think, starts with activism. And I think in reality, maybe lawyers overstate, overstate, pardon me, overstate their um, power and like the role that they should play in Mm -hmm. advancing some of the policies that can actually, uh, you know, House more people, <laughs> um, wow. and and one of the issues that I felt at HUD was that I was so removed from the mission. Like the work, the agency did was super important, but it was also very thirty thousand foot level. Wow. Um, so that was quite eye opening. Um, But I think just being at the agency around people who thought about discrimination a lot, who thought about consumer finance a lot, mortgages, how these contracts work, what they, what consumers are, you know, the kind of information that people are entitled to, the kind of benefits that people are entitled to. I think that it was just like a good atmosphere to be in a good place to think out loud and to learn from my colleagues. So that's sort of what I got hud um, and i also once there i actually kind of realized that my dream job was elsewhere but <laughs> you know, that without first starting at hud the-
1: That's, a, that's an important thing to realize, I think. <laughs> um, one of the most painful chapters in the book to read is Tonight We Scream, mm-hmm. in which you recount the ways in which you have been harassed by men of every kind and manner. The chapter is at least in, in part about a, a terrible sexual harassment by your pastor, who you call your mother's spiritual father. This ultimate betrayal is a powerful catalyst in how you view the world. What did it mean to your religious life to have been violated in this way?
0: Oh, gosh, it was such a betrayal. And this person's actions, which happened while I was in in high school, um, really shook my sense of trust so much that I actually, I mean, first of all, I never got, therapy for it so I never really got over it like it just took me a really long time to process even as I stayed within the church something about his actions just you know kind of started breaking my relationship with God um, made me doubt people's intentions I think it made me maybe for the better very suspicious of power and authorities. Uh, it definitely sort of laid the groundwork for me to become an adult who, yeah, really asks a lot of questions before trusting figures of authority, um, government included. And I say this as a person who, you know, works for the government at the time of, of recording. But yeah, that experience really shook my world. And um, looking back on it, you know, I, for a long time, I just kind of buried the experience, I mean, I talked about it openly, but I didn't, I don't think that's the same as sort of processing the experience. And the processing really came with writing this book and sort of making sense of what, of whether I thought we had done the right thing by not calling out this person, by not, by not actually telling his church and people who should know what he did to me, you know, that that he did it. And And that made me think in turn about this like culture of silence and non-intervention around like sexual harassment and sexual violence and the ways in which we all have or likely have contributed to it. Um, And an interesting thing that happened while writing this book is that, so I have not sold the rights of the book to uh, the United, to like a publisher in the United Kingdom still could, but at the time of recording that hasn't happened. And the UK has much, uh, kind of much more lenient laws for defamation um, than in the United States. So there was some concern from my publisher that if we used his real name, you know, while he was alive, which he still was last time I checked, that it could expose me to litigation. And so I had to make a choice about whether to use his name or not. And I ended up Changing it to a pseudonym. And I have to say that was so disempowering. I I still understand the reason why I did it. I think I still stand behind it, but I hate that I did it. It just felt like even while writing the book, even while writing about the about silence and and how detrimental it is, here I am censoring myself and protecting this person by not giving his name, by changing the name of his church, because you know, British law is like tilted in his favor and he could make my life difficult for speaking the truth as a victim. So that was odd <laughs> and upsetting. <laughs> but here we are.
1: The, the novel ends with the fluttering of life, um, <laughs> a growing child inside you. Do you see this story as part of your child's inheritance from you?
0: Very much so. I, I don't know whether he'll ever read the book um but i, I bet he w-
1: i bet he will <laughs>
0: <laughs> but yeah it felt in some way like a gift to him like here are your mother's home here is where you come from and and you and now you get to build your own home and your own life and maybe some of my experiences will be helpful for him as he thinks of what home means to him in the future but i sort of i don't know it sort of felt like a gift to him, something I wish I had about my parents. And I, uh, for the reader, I thought, well, I don't know, it might be interesting for the reader to be in the same position as me, which is to guess what kind of home I will provide to my child with, you know, with the reader, knowing everything they know about me. How mm. do you think that will go? <laughs> so that's a question I ask myself, and we're, you know, we're all operating from from the same data now.
1: <laughs> that's so funny um before i let you go i'm dying to know what you've been reading recently and whether you have some ideas of things you'd like to recommend to listeners of the show
0: it's been um a big year of reading for me in part because when i was writing the book i really had trouble reading. And so I really missed that in my life. So I actually have some great books that I read this year. I one of the books that I loved the most this year was the Netanyahu's by Joshua Cohen.
1: Oh, yes. That's a wonderful novel.
0: It's wonderful. It's so funny. I think it's very difficult to be funny in writing. And he just, it's cerebral and just a page turner, but also really hilarious. So um, yeah,
1: it's I, it's you know top two funniest things I I read this year for sure. Oh, well,
0: you read it this year too. That's yeah. Funny. I loved Trust by Hernan Diaz. Mm-hmm. I thought it was so ambitious. And I'll say, so I'm reading a novel right now as I'm ending the year. Way back in the backlist. Oh oh, I'm sorry. I think I should also shout out If I Survive you because I just loved that book so much. But I'm currently reading The Growth of the Soil. By Knut Hamsun, hmm. uh, it's this Norwegian novel written in 1917. I think he may have won the Nobel Prize at some point for literature. Um, it,
1: yeah, Knut Hamsun.
0: Knut, yes, strange book. Just, <laughs> just strange. <laughs> it's so much of the book is just these people tilling the soil and building <laughs> a life and you know what passes for drama isn't really you know there's a little bit of conflict but it's just (laughs) i think it kind of goes to show like the way the expectations for literature has changed over the year i feel like there's a huge i don't know like maybe it's it's fashionable to be very brief and Hmm. um to have a lot of conflict where's the conflict where's the climax (laughs) and newt is like we're we're going to be building homes. We're going to be bringing in farm animals. We're you know it's really slow paced, and I'm still enjoying it. I can't look away. Uh,
1: he he wrote a book called hunger which i believe a one of our shared friends in common uh wrote a great article about so if you're oh. still if you remain interested in him um tim wenson's article on hunger it may, maybe it will uh, illuminate why oh why handsome is so uh so perhaps um lovingly boring
0: <laughs> <laughs> i i Love that recommendation. I will uh, <laughs> look it up.
1: These are great recommendations. I, I, I'm embarrassed to say that I have yet to read all of Trust. Um, it's not because I didn't love the first part of it, but it got set aside for for other things. But it's been on so many people's sort of best of lists and, mm-hmm. and every sort of description I hear of it makes me want to return to it all the more. So I promise I will.
0: Wonderful.
1: It's been so wonderful to talk to you, Vanessa. This is really an extraordinary memoir. I just, I I can't recommend Homebound enough. And we'll have a, a link to purchase it on the website along with your recommendations. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me.
0: Thank you. I really enjoyed our conversation.
1: Well, that's all from me for now. My great thanks to Vanessa A.B. for a wonderful conversation about her debut memoir, Homebound. You can find a link to purchase Homebound and all of Vanessa's recommended books at the website burnedbybooks.com. There you'll find all of our previous episodes, as well as podcast merchandise and more information about the show. We have a really exciting lineup of 2023 authors for you, including Dan Coyce, whose Vintage Contemporaries is my first read and first interview of the year. Until next time, this has been Burned by Books.